coding, or at least the movement to get people to learn how to code, particularly getting children to learn how to code, is really strong currently. And yet this movement has roots that go back more than a few decades. And yet coding is not seen as an integral part of the K-12 curriculum most places. Today on the show, we have Yasmin Kafai and Quinn Burke, the authors of the new book, Connected Code. And we'll be talking about the need for K-12 systems to reintegrate programming as part of the curriculum and what that means for thinking and for participation. This is New Books and Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. The book is Connected Code. And one of the first things we always like to do on New Books and Technology is to have our authors really just introduce themselves, tell a little bit about their background. So whichever one of you wants to go first, feel free to do so. Yasmin, why don't you start? Okay, nice move, Quinn. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm, um, I'm a professor of education learning sciences here at the University of Pennsylvania, and I actually do have a secondary appointment in computer and information studies, and most of my work really focuses on computer science education, designing new tools, programming environments like the programming language and community uh, scratch, but then also figuring out new um, approaches, materials like working with electronic textiles to kind of broaden our perspectives on what we and with what we can kind of do programming. And in general, I'm concerned about uh, you know making programming accessible uh, and increasing diversity. Mm-hmm. Over to you, Quinn. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. My name is Quinn Burke. I'm an assistant professor at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. And um, like Yasmin, I'm, I'm very interested in um, this uh, comeback of, of middle school and high school students engaging in computer programming. Um, in t- in terms of my particular interests around it, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in issues of equity because I think that's one of the major issues that is going on in terms of access to these communities and to these tools. Um, but I'm also interested in, in sort of the, the type of coding languages that students use and how that affects their overall perception of computer programming. And uh, likewise, um, what kind of products kids are creating through code? Um, my own uh, sort of research, I was a high school teacher for a number of years, so I looked at digital storytelling um, through the Scratch programming language, and we found some interesting things in terms of what kids created in terms of digital stories um, and what type of programming they learn by creating those type of products. Um, Yasmin and uh, others have, have studied a lot of, in terms of game making uh, with computer programming. And game making results in sort of learning coding and sort of through a different lens. And so um, my interest going forward is sort of exploring sort of these dynamics of, of what you create and how it changes your perception of coding and, and programming in general. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So what prompted the book? I learned that it's, it's a part of a trilogy, the second in a trilogy. So what prompted the book Connected Code, Why Children Need to Learn Programming? Uh, I mean, the, the book prompted my lifelong obsession with, uh, you know, learning and teaching programming. And I actually came to the United States 25 years ago to find out what was happening with computer and programming in school because in my native country, Germany, there wasn't much happening. And I just 
came here in the mid-80s at the cusp of the movement, which then within a few years kind of disappeared. And for the last 20 years, I've kind of operated on the fringes, um, believing that this was something really important. And what Quinn and I have both, I mean, been working on uh, for several years and then been witnessing in the last four or five years it's this renaissance. I mean, coding is making a comeback. Code.org, a nonprofit uh, started by a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, Hadi Patobi, you know, organizes the Hour of Code, and he posted a video last year um, on why school, what schools don't teach, and that video went viral within two weeks. And Quinn and I had literally just started thinking about writing that book. And we realized that we had to finish really quickly because something <laughs> was happening. Right. And I think, I mean, one of the things that came out too, Yasmin, um, Yasmin and I were up at um, MIT for a Scratch Day event last summer. And everyone is very interested in this coding movement. Um, but to be quite frank, people forget that there's a, a longer history on this than I think most people are aware. Um, and, and, you know, the book is dedicated to Seymour Papert, who Yasmin studied with. Um, but this was going on throughout the 1980s, and it saw some incredible success, and it also saw some failure uh, in terms of reaching schools like they had initially intended. So as the title suggests, um, one of the goals of the book was to sort of remind people that this has been a wider movement, and, and how are things different this time versus 30 years ago? And um, so back up to uh, MIT, uh, there was a few people in the audience who do have this longer memory on, on how initially this rolled out. So I think uh, we had a few people come up to our, us after our presentation and thank us because, again, that's not something that's being talked about very much in the mass media and in the public presses about this. So we, we feel like the book does a pretty good job of, of, of stepping back and, and kind of reminding people that there's a longer history here. Absolutely, and you do talk about the, the Pappert and his book Mindstorms. Um, but I want to ask, what is it about now? What is it about the what twenty twelve through now? Perhaps a little earlier than that that has caused a renaissance besides just you know uh, the ubiquity of computers and and digital products. What is it? What has sparked this renaissance in teaching coding and coding as a necessity? I'll do a start and then Quinn can, can chip in. I, I think there, you know, we have technology everywhere, but it, as it turns out, kids actually, I mean, while they know how to use technology very um, actively and broadly, know very little on what goes into making them. And you ask somebody today what is programming, you, you'll get, I mean, uh, very few kids have any experience on how the technology um, that they're using every day um, is actually being created. And we notice that, I mean, computing is everywhere. It's not just in computer science, you know, a very um, a particular discipline. It's in the humanities. It's in the arts. It's in the sciences everywhere. And, I mean, wherever you are, you will actually need some understanding of computation. That doesn't mean you have to become a computer scientist, a programmer, software engineer, 
but like reading and writing, um, you know, we all learn those basic literacy. And the book is making a case that programming, coding is a form of basic literacy like reading and writing was when public schooling came about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'll just add to that briefly. I mean, I think Code.org has done a remarkable job of getting the message out there, but that's only going to take us so far. I I think certainly the economics, you know, they, they regularly tout that there's 1.4 million jobs that need to be filled, and in this country we're only graduating um, uh, students that would be able to fill a third of them by 2020. Um, my stats might be a little rough, but that's generally what we're hearing. I also think that the number of tools, things like Scratch and Alice and Game Maker. Uh, we have so much stuff more readily available for free over the internet. So I think a lot of this stuff is happening. We get policymakers, educators, people like ourselves, sort of with this top-down approach. But uh, if you look at the kids themselves, uh, they're doing this, uh, as Yasmin points out, without even fully knowing they're doing this. They don't see this in terms of computer coding. They see this in terms of making games, sharing games, creating stories, doing digital art with their friends online. So, um, you know, there's a top-down thing going on here, but I think a lot of this is also very much bottom-up with certain youth communities. Um, Going back to the original point, the question now is how do we get uh, some of these select youth communities, how do we sort of foster that environment to, to a wider a swath of children and in, in, in that regard the book focuses on how U.S. public schools have a role. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things you all just mentioned was about the idea of a, a different kind of literacy. And I want to know if you, not want to know, but I was asking you to perhaps expand on that idea. So we have literacy and most people think of literacy as being able to read, right? Read, write, uh, understand words. And then we have things like information literacy, which is about finding, evaluating, um, accessing, perhaps manipulating information. Where does coding as literacy fit in with those? Well, you know, it's debatable, but I mean, you know, I I was recently with a group of students and we were talking about this and arguably I think – the internet is the the media of the 21st century. I mean, I, I don't know if paper was it for 20th century, but um, the very fact of the matter is, we got this term in around 2001 of digital natives, which gave us this sort of supposition that children, just by the nature of their birth, um, are going to be naturally uh, more adept at using computers. Um, I think Yasmin's research, a number of people's research, has suggested that in fact this is really not the case. Kids may have some uh, ability to, to manage uh, social networking accounts, text, and email. But generally speaking, we're not doing things creatively, critically. Um, if we want to get to understand the media of computers, we have to get down to these zeros and ones, the functionality in terms of how uh, content is actually created on these screens. And that's programming. So um, I, I think we've surfed uh, along on the Internet for a while and talked a little bit about some um, – more surface level things in terms of getting to know computers. I think there's increasingly understanding that we have to get a little bit deeper here. And if we really want to recognize computers as uh, the presence and and the way to communicate in the new millennium, we really have to recognize that we we need to um, develop children who know how to do it. Mm -hmm. So now you all talked about how 20 years ago, 
or actually, I guess more than 20 years ago, <laughs> there was a kind of coding uh, movement, particularly in public schools. And then it kind of disappeared. I was wondering if you could talk about that, the reasons that happened, particularly because this was at a time when the personal computer started to become uh, you know, commercially available and popular. You know, everybody asks this question, why did it go away? You know, why did it become extinct? And I mean, part of the reason why we wrote the book is, you know, maybe we can actually learn from some of the lessons of the things which happened there. Not everything was a failure. There were also some successes. We actually gained some insights. And I think the reason it went away, it's not just one reason. One reason was, you know, the Internet came along and the CD-ROMs, and you now could actually do many interesting things with just a mouse click and slipping in a disk. You know, you didn't actually need to learn programming in order to interface with the machine. But there were also problems in in schools in terms of not having enough teachers, a very similar uh, problem which we're facing right now in Mm. knowing how to teach coding, not just from a technical side, but also from a pedagogical side. And I think even though, as you pointed out, the personal computer made its appearance because most of the programming in school in the 80s and late early 90s was just in computer labs. People really didn't have personal computers yet at home, uh, the large majority at least. Um, So um, there was, you know, suddenly it became much more interesting uh, and more easier to uh, do this without programming. So the need went away and people felt they really didn't need to know this. Not realizing if you don't have these kind of broad pushes for any type of literacy, whether it's reading, writing, whether it's science or whether it's information literacy, you mentioned, you know, you have this pipeline issue that down the line when because kids make very early decisions about what they're good at, what they're interested in. So once you come to the high school level, uh, you know, I mean, the decisions have been made and we're now facing the situation that there are some states where not one student is taking an AP CS exam. And, and that's a great indicator what will happen at college uh, that... Uh, you know, a lot of kids make the decision, this is not for them. I mean, I'm not involved uh, and uh, the doors essentially are closed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you want to add anything, Quinn? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I think you asked me spot on. I, I think that, you know, it's funny, I got to laugh with my students every once in a while. I mean, when I was in college and high school, being really into technology just meant you were sort of in a select group, and whether you call it geeks or nerds, I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is jobs and, and people like, um, you know, even Mark Zuckerberg, it's now kind of a lot more, um, I think, socially acceptable and actually cool, I guess for a lack of a better word, to be good at technology and to have the latest technology. So I, I guess there's a lot of stuff in the water that's sort of shifting things between jobs and personas and public perception. But, yeah, I, um, 
I think going back to Yasmin's point, um, there are remarkable challenges. How do you get teachers uh, who have computer science proficiency to go take jobs in in, in difficult public schools earning money uh, that they're being paid less than they should be? Um, You know, that's a major issue. Um, And and that's one of the things we do address in the book. but, yeah, there's still some incredible hurdles, and I think one thing we do with the book is say we're not quite – we're hopeful. We believe this, but, you know, there's a chance, uh, and if you read the education historian Larry Cuban, uh, there are people who believe that this next wave of movement is going to fizzle as well in schools. So we're hopeful that that's not the case, but there are plenty of people on the other side who see this Coding for All initiative as uh, really something that's going to come and go in the next few years. Uh, again, we don't believe that, and we're hopeful it won't be, but uh, there's a lot of people who see just too many hurdles in getting this uh, actually going. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the, the importance of um, programming for students and, and for people, but let's couch it in the language that you all used in the book, and that is the idea of not just computational thinking, but computational participation. And I want to know if you could expound on those ideas and explain them. Well, I mean, for those, I mean, computational thinking is a term which uh, computer science uh, professor Jeanette Wing uh, from Carnegie Mellon uh, coined. I mean, um, other people actually have used it before, including Seymour. But she wrote a, you know, short essay in 2006 uh, for the computer science community pointing out what is really special about computer science. And, you know, if you want to sum it up in a nutshell, is computer science kind of, provides a way of thinking, and that's what she called computational thinking, to think about systems, human behavior, and solving problems. And one way you do this, I mean, you, um, I mean, um, you know, you code, you develop programs, everything we experience in our digital life. And I think this is a very astute observation, and I mean... This term computational thinking uh, really uh, became the rallying cry, not just in computer science, but also uh, in education, because the point which Jeanette made was that uh, computing is everywhere. Computational thinking is used in chemistry and biology uh, when genes are decoded, when algorithms are designed. It's used in law, it's art, everywhere. It's not just something germane to computer um, scientists uh, everywhere people are using it. And we took this term because we think it's, I mean, appropriate, but we wanted to connect it to a larger discussion around underrepresentation, lack of diversity, because we think it's not just about you thinking, it's really about you participating in the digital part. Uh, public, I mean, on the internet, in what Quinn mentioned earlier, in contributing creatively and critically. And that's why we changed the term. For us, it's computational thinking plus. Computational participation is adding the social dimension because we need to realize, uh, like reading and writing, these are skills which are learned, which we learn in order to participate in our society. Uh, to become responsible citizens, uh, to become engaged politically, and to express ourselves. And that's not just thinking, that's actual participation. Yeah, and and to piggyback on that, Jasmine, and I'll just say, I mean, you know, Yasmin and I had some hesitation. I mean, in... uh, 
in this question of kind of getting coding, you don't always want to introduce new terms. You know, you don't always want to add another thing to the pot. But, you know, to Yasmin's point, I think one of the things we felt with computational thinking is that it's, while it's a, it's a fantastic way of sort of conceiving of this process of kind of internalizing algorithms and being able to see things in terms of input, output, and mechanism, it is very standalone. Um, I, one of the things we, Yasmin and I had laughed about while we were kind of constructing the book was, you know, Latin was always being touted in, in school as a way to help you learn how to think. Um, but I don't know that that approach to understanding Latin as a language is a particularly effective uh, selling point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see uh, computation, computers, and, and programming as a way of having kids be able to more meaningfully connect with each other through creating their own projects and sharing them online. And I think, um, yeah, as mean steered me to a great book called by David Gauntlet over in the UK called Making is Connecting. When we make things, when we create things, we have something to share about ourselves. And uh, Gauntlet makes the argument that these type of connections are more meaningful connections because there is sort of a personal homemade sharing that's going on. And we believe that, um, and it's something that we sort of talk about in the book. But that that sort of also captures this shift, and uh, I think it also makes a, a stronger case of why K through twelve. Uh, schools need to, uh, you know, pick up the gauntlet here and see this in terms of not just a isolated thinking process, but as a way that kids uh, can better connect with each other and society as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm me, sorry. Go ahead, Yasmin. Yeah, let me actually add, as Quinn bringing up Latin, you know, I mean, one of the reasons we also wrote the book is to kind of bring back, I mean, Seymour Peppert, because, I mean, we and many others felt he was, you know, fairly prescient about... Uh, you know, what the role of programming was. For him, it was a new pedagogy, a new way of learning. And in Mindstorms, he uses this great example of how people learn language. And he says, you know, you really don't learn it in school. The best way to learn it, you, you go to France, you go to the country where the language is spoken, and that's the best context for learn. Uh, and I think we all can agree with that. And for him, you know, he was a mathematician by, by training, and he was very interested in creating a land, I mean, a place where, math land, where it wasn't just about learning, you know, the drill and practice, but by really thinking mathematically. And so computational participation is to think about where can we become, you know, create a context. The school, the book is about providing examples inside and outside of school, that computational participation can become this way to engage computationally, to think and participate computationally with the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you talk about the personal and social connectivity um, that coding and making can bring in the book. But I want to know, though, does this... Does your ideas about personal and social connectivity, does that, is that just the antithesis of the mythology surrounding what a coder is? So when we think of the coder in popular culture, we think of, right, we think of the nerdy guy, and it's always a guy, right? Nerdy guy, glasses, perhaps socially awkward. So is it your ideas about social and personal connectivity kind of, uh, anti what we think of in popular culture as the coder? Yes, even the cover of the book. <laughs> <laughs> Girl, 
And if you look, many of the vignettes which Quinn and I have chosen have, I mean, kids from underrepresented groups. I mean, we're really careful not to fall into this uh, stereotype, which Mm -hmm. rightly so is very much promoted, even in the video of Code.org, What Schools Don't Teach. You know, the really, I mean, um, the realization that a lot of those kids who get into coding, um, you know, they are a particular group. They have what my colleague Jane Margolis, who has written two other wonderful books, uh, Unlocking the Clubhouse and Stuck in the Shallow End, has written called The Preparatory Advantage. I mean, our we're trying to make a case. Coding is for everyone in the example illustrate, you know, it's in school, outside of school, create connections and social relevance from different points. But it's a huge issue. I mean, I, I think, and it's still something that's widespread in undergraduate and graduate CS programs, that this belief in the, the, the trait theory, the, the myth that some people come out of the womb with this ability to code and other people simply don't have it. Now, it, it seems ridiculous when you, you sort of just state it out loud, but this is a, a premise that people are operating with all the time. Um, it, Yasmin mentioned Jane Margolis. Uh, even Malcolm Gladwell with the 10,000-hour rule demonstrates that a lot of these uh, coders, um, you know, Zuckerberg prominently had, you know, numerous tutoring sessions and these uh, very elite educations. Uh, So I I think that it's one of the things that we're trying to do with the book is also talk about how the the fact that this trait theory really doesn't exist. This myth of the the boy genius, often who is white, uh, is really uh, not a real reality. Uh, These are just people who got the preparation at a time when other people weren't getting it. one of the realistic things is that it, I think we're realizing in, in coding is that you know getting to kids at high school is, is no longer uh, I think sufficient. Uh, by the time high school hits, and I think Yasmin sort of referenced this earlier, there's a lot of water under the bridge. Uh, kids are already sort of positioning themselves of who they want to be in the world. I think middle school, even or, uh, upper elementary school, we're seeing a lot more of a shift trying to get these kids at earlier ages where kids are still, um, I don't want to say more pliable, but they, they engage with school activities a little bit more readily and they um, sort of jump in a little bit more head first. Um, so, again, this is all sort of stuff that we Gonna, we circle around, but um, yeah, th- these are real major issues, and un- unfortunately, they're, s- they're still very much with us, especially the older that the child gets. Mm-hmm. Another thing you talk about and related to what we just talked about is the participation gap or the gap in participation among different, I guess, clusters of students. So, students in perhaps lower income areas or um, students of color, uh, there's a participation gap in coding. And yet you see now popping up um, movements, so black girls code or girls who code and those kinds of movements. And what do you think the perhaps position of these movements targeting these uh, certain communities is going to have with respect to kids learning to code? Uh, yeah, you know, I, and I know Yasmin has worked a number with the e-textiles around this. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think that when you get these kind of um, 
they're extracurricular. They're outside of the normal school day. They create safe places for kids to go to and not only be able to uh, connect with people who are like-minded, but to work on projects collaboratively. Uh, and it just sort of fosters, I think, sort of uh, an environment where you're, where you're connecting with people who, who are sort of like-minded and, and are interested in some of these same topics. Um, one of the things I think that uh, these uh, clubs, are, I think, are getting better at doing is sort of coalescing with the school day and trying to connect with uh, wider institutions of colleges and high schools to make sure that um, once a, a kid has completed one particular club, there's a place for this child to move on to. Um, I think there's a want to talk about a pipeline and um uh so one of the hopes i think for some of these clubs is that that you know through uh, the internet social networking that kids can be a lot more aware of of where to move if they're going to move off from one club to another and how this can interface with school and even possibly with uh, tech careers uh so i think that's one of the challenges going forward but no i i think these are remarkable places and it's encouraging uh that so many have cropped up sort of organically over the last five years but it's not enough you know i mean it's great and i mean we make the case in the book too and we know that from other areas too. You're not, you don't just learn to read and write just in school. I mean, you learn a lot outside of school. And I think with coding, it's the same way. You know, getting a few hours of coding uh, will not transform you. You need other opportunities. And I think this is where these movements come in. But I think the book also we're trying to make a strong case in order to achieve diversity and equity, which is sorely missing uh, in the tech field. And I think the companies, the major companies in Silicon Valley are realizing this if you pay attention to the $300 million Intel um, initiative. The real, I mean, challenge in order to achieve equity and diversity cannot just rely on after-school organization. I mean, schools, public schools, charter schools are, I mean, a key factor in, in broadening uh, participation and closing uh, the gap. And this is where the real challenge will be. I mean, schools, on the other hand, also cannot just do it alone. I mean, and that's where I think you know, maybe sometimes the pipeline argument, even though we're using it, you know, is a little bit misleading because it suggests this kind of like one pathway. We really should think about a network kind of metaphor. We need multiple places, whether it's, you know, uh, schools, whether it's after school clubs, whether it's online communities like Scratch, like, I mean, uh, in order to kind of uh, uh, accomplish a- engagement. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the, the other main themes that you all talk about is the movement of and how coding helps the movement of particularly young people, children, from being just consumers to being producers. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, I think in the most plain sense, I mean, I remember working with fourth grade students and writing uh, digital stories in Scratch and um it's a tough process. I mean, to, to in Scratch to create a one-minute short little digital story can take a, a fourth grader three, four weeks, meeting you know four hours a week. So it's a it's a laborious process to actually make it happen. But both 
boy, when the kid is able to post it up on the website and show it to his family, share it with uh, his friends, and then most remarkably get comments from people the child has never even met saying, hey, I like your story. Have you thought about this? Or that's a cool story. Where did you get the graphics? Or how did you do this? Um, That third element there, not just the family, not just the friends, but also all of a sudden getting comments from people on something like the Scratch website who is a child has never met before, that's where I think the kid really understands, boy, there's something about making something and putting it and sharing it. Um, And, you know, safety issues and all these other issues aside of making and and downloading from things online, in that type of situation, that fourth grader, you know, just saw the web completely differently and, and most importantly saw himself in terms of the web, which is is one of these things that we talk about in terms of literacy and a wider understanding of how the media works. So that's a that's a big shift. Um, and I don't think you can get that shift through Computer Lab 101 or reading books about the nature of technology. That's stuff that has to be done by the kid for that appreciation really to settle in. Mm-hmm. So... When and Yasmin, what would you like people to take away from your book? The book is Connected Code, Why Children Need to Learn Programming. What would you like people in the audience, perhaps policymakers or, um, you know, the local school boards, what would you like them to take away from the book? I think the simple message of the book is really... I mean, we need to consider this a new literacy, and we need to make an important distinction. Our goal is not that every child uh, becomes a computer scientist or engineer. Uh, You know, that's often kind of seen in the same context. I mean, we think about it much more broadly. In the same way we think about introducing reading and writing, we don't expect everybody to write the great novel. I mean, most literature is pedestrian, very few people kind of reach that level, but we all learn to read and write in order, you know, to function in society, to read newspapers, to participate in political um, discussions, and to express ourselves, you know, to go to write love letters. Well, today you don't write love letters because the 140 <laughs> character tweet. And likewise, I mean, you show your participation, I mean, on the internet by being able to design things, to modify them. It's part, it's being part of the con- conversation. Uh, and you need skills to do this. I mean, that's, and I think we, the analogy with coding isn't that far along. But again, it's not about the message of the book art. It's not about turning everybody into a, uh, a programmer or computer scientist. It's really about a basic literacy and understanding on how the digital public in which we all participate, that that public is every pixel is designed. Somebody made decision on how to design this, and you need to be able to voice your concerns, I mean, to participate in the conversation, even if somebody else is making the changes Otherwise, you don't have a voice in that space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so the next thing I want to ask you is what's next for you all? Um, uh, video games, I think. <laughs> I, I, I believe that's correct, right, Yasmin? 
Yes, I mentioned to Jasmine we're you know um, we're writing we're actually writing the very next book, Connected Gaming. It's part of that series of Connected Play, which was the first book which looked at kids' social participation online, how that's configured, and an instrumental part of their development. And Connected Code was all about the computational part of participation. And I think Connected Gaming, the next book will be bringing together the social as well as the participation and computation part by looking at this particular context of digital games, which, like coding, I mean, uh, 10 years earlier, has become a driving force in education, I mean, to bring games, to improve motivation and learning. We just happen to look at it from the other side on how making your own games is a wonderfully rich, productive, and creative way to engage students in not just learning coding, but in collaboration, design, and many other things. I think, yeah, just to piggyback on it, Jasmine, I mean, it's just a, if you think about some of the best video games and, and just games in general, uh, games have always allowed for a little bit of modding, you know, you change your character sheet, change the hair, change the looks, or, you know, make these small modifications. And so one of the things I think we're doing with this latest piece is that we're trying to question this exploration of is, is playing a game and making a game all that distinct, and I think one of the arguments, we're still fleshing all this out, but what we're seeing so far is that we, from what we've read and what we've researched and, and looked at is that making and playing is no longer uh, two separate entities. These are not distinct spheres. In fact, uh, with most good video games, digital games, and, and games in general, the making and the playing is almost occurring simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, where can people find more um, writing and research from both of you? Uh, go to places. I, you know, my, my college, Charleston, we, uh, webpage it has links uh, to uh, my own pieces. But, Yasmin, I'll let you kind of. Yes. I mean, we both have our papers on the Scratch website. There are a number of papers put up uh, where you can go. Uh, on my website, you can even find for free uh, the first book, Minds in Play, I got the copyright back and I produced it in multiple digital copies. And on our web pages, we also have shorter versions for people who are not quite ready uh, to tackle the book. Uh, but the book really, I think, gives a very ac- accessible account, uh, not just to academics, but also to teachers. And I mean, Quinn and I, we hope to also write, we've written it for a broader audience to introduce the ideas and to provide lots of vivid examples of what coding looks like. Uh, And, you know, you don't even need to know programming in order to read the book. It's true. Great. So the book is Connected Code, Why Children Need to Learn Programming. And this has been Yasmin Kafai and Quinn Burke. And thank you both for coming on New Books in Technology. And for those of you in the audience, have a great week. Thank you.